Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. A little warning, this episode talks about domestic abuse, which can be a sensitive topic. Hey guys, welcome to X Appeal. This is Jen and Julian, and you're listening to episode 19. So trying to figure out how to start this podcast because i know we're yeah. talking about some serious today you know, is, is, is uh yeah it's serious we usually keep it a little bit more fun a little yeah. lighter we but... talk about the lighter side of relationships we laugh at it you know we there's there's some stuff that comes up but this but time, it's an important month it is it is so october is well october is a month that's like a dedicated to a lot of different things halloween but, but not halloween yeah. sure yeah um but this one we're talking about is is domestic violence awareness month uh, and you'd be hard pressed, I think, to find somebody in this country or in any country, frankly, uh, who hasn't been impacted in some way by a toxic or even abusive relationship. I think you'd agree with that. Yeah. Um, and, and to me, it's, it's always like, what's, what's toxic versus what's abusive mm -hmm. right where, where's the line where do you draw that line what's someone being overly protective and technically abusing you emotionally versus what's him being him again him or her being overly jealous mm -hmm. what you know th those there's so many distinction when you think about um non-physical abuse and i think that's that, that that's a, a very very tricky subject mm -hmm. so you know i i've i've been a domestic violence yes, advocate know. for the last i would say 10 years now um and if you could indulge me i'll tell you where that came from so uh 15 years ago i was a news reporter in hartford connecticut and you know i didn't know anybody i was the youngest the youngest reporter there by about 10 years um but luckily i was working with this woman who was the assignment editor for the station and uh, she kind of took me under her wing and like maybe part of her family. We'd have like dinners at her house. She'd take me shopping um, and, and really made me feel at ease. She called herself, you know, I'm your Connecticut mom. So like, okay. don't worry, I got your back. Because, you know, sometimes if you're working in news, especially if you're younger, it can feel like a snake pit mm -hmm. <laughs> at times. So just to give you an idea of how thoughtful this person was, you know, for whenever I signed on to the morning show, she gifted me um, this like gift basket with lavender uh, lotions and, and oils and like a like a blanket because she knew I'd be taking a lot of naps. So she wanted me to oh, feel like so nice. nice and relaxed. Um, you know, we knew that she was married. We knew the relationship wasn't going that great because I would hear her every once in a while talk about, you know, Jim's out for the weekend. So me and the girls are going to have like a fun weekend. It always, it always seemed like an escape for her whenever he, he was gone. And a couple of times I had witnessed, you know, him diminishing her verbally. Um, nothing crazy. Just, I thought it was just his ego talking. So can, uh, do you remember anything specific? Yeah, I remember one thing. So we uh, were about to say, she wanted to say grace at the dinner table and he, and he said, uh, you're you're presuming that she wants to say grace, Alice. You know, like lay off it. 
And I was just, you know, a little taken aback and, you know, I didn't say anything. I was like, no, of course I want to say grace. It's, it's all good. It's all good. So that was like just the one, yeah, just the one thing that I witnessed. And that was the very first time I had ever met him. But that's insane mm -hmm. because like, I'm, for example, I'm not religious. If somebody at the table says, hey, you presuming that he wants to say grace, I'll be <laughs> like, oh, I'll be like, oh, yeah. thanks. Yeah. I'll be like, thanks. Like, it's so far yeah. from me, even me thinking that <laughs> that could be a hint that he is abusive. Oh, right. It's, especially if he had a rough day and people asking him questions, just like maybe he just wants to eat. Sure, sure. And I know, I know that he's good on you for picking up on that from work, but I but that here's the thing I didn't because I, I didn't know. Ah. I just didn't know that it was anything other than him just, you know, maybe being tired or the, like I said, the ego yeah. talking. So that was maybe the one, the one occasion that I had witnessed. Well, fast forward about five years later. Oh. Uh, she got a job as an executive assistant to our general manager. She got her own car. She was like super happy about it. She was, you know, I think it was like a Dodge Charger that she was, you know, and, and she was like feeling herself. And yeah. I, we could tell there was like a shift in the way that she uh, was looking at herself. Almost okay. like, you know, she's freeing herself from the situation. I didn't know at that, at that moment they were going through a divorce mm. um, and that she was still living in the same house as he was. So, um, one morning I, I, I walk into work and she, you know, she was, she worked a different shift. So I never really, I didn't get to see her for like maybe the, a, a couple of months. Um, uh, we would talk, but I would, I wouldn't get to actually see her every day. Like I used to. So I walk in and right away, my producer says, Jen, um, I, we have something we got to tell you. And I was like, what, you know, what could it possibly be? Because the way they were saying it almost seemed like juicy gossip. And I was yeah. like, what, what's, ooh, who got fired, you know? And then when I see all the managerial staff at, at five o'clock in the morning, I was like, this is, this can't be good. Um, yeah. And they said, we heard over the scanner that Alice um, had been, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, we heard in the scanner that Alice's address had come up as a, uh, as a shooting mm. and, and we think it's her. And I was like, that can't be. And, uh, you know, they said, Alice is always very proud of you as a reporter. She knew that, you know, and they were talking about her in the past tense. And I was just like, this can't oh, be happening. Can't, yeah. yeah. They were like, uh, you know, we, she was always super proud of you would take on any kind of, um, you know, report task, whatever, any kind of assignment would, no matter whatever it was. And you would do it with a smile on your face. And so we, we knew that she loved you and she want, she would want you to do this. And I was like, okay. So yeah. So they, they sent me out to the police department because her um, father hadn't been notified yet. So for, for maybe three hours, I had to report on this. Uh, basically what happened was she had been texting a colleague of ours at the station um, for help um, and saying that, you know, Jim, her husband came in with a gun and uh, he was threatening to harm her and, and, and himself. And she said, I, I don't want to die. I don't know what to do. Can you please, can you please call the police? Mm -hmm. um, because I think it's serious this time. And, and by the time, uh, this colleague had called the police. She actually got on the phone with 911 because at that point you couldn't text 911. Uh, and she got on the phone and I made the mistake of listening to the 911 call 
But you basically hear her trying to explain what was going on, that he was threatening her life. He dragged her into a room. And then you, the last thing you hear is gunshots and a thud. And Jesus what Christ. happened was um, he had shot her and then he went into a separate bedroom and shot himself. himself. So it was oh, murder suicide. coward. Yep. Uh, so and then the little the girls who she had there, I think nine and 15 years old. They were running from the house. They didn't see. I don't think they saw anything. But, uh, you know, that day, that morning, I had to report all morning from her house um, and seeing the crime tape and seeing the guys in spacesuits walk in and out of the house that I, you know, would go to and 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 hang out with her uh, was just absolutely surreal. And her parents were there. And it was just one of those moments. And then you you think back to yourself, you do like this forensic analysis, right? Like, what could I have done? Yeah. There had to have been something that she said, some moment that that she let me in where I could have stopped this, you know? And that's what, you know, family and friends are left with. So I made it, the only thing that I could do at that point was make it my mission uh, to, to talk about it and if God forbid any of my friends were going through anything like that, if I was going through anything like that, um, fight like hell to to get them out of it or get myself out of it. Yeah. You know? um, so that's yeah. okay. Well, Sorry that's for the, some, the little uh, emotional breakdown, but very it, that, heavy you know, stuff. Yeah. Ten years later, you don't forget about it. I think about her every single day, and you know, it's it's if if. It, domestic violence is such a it's such a tricky thing to talk about because there's so many different ugly faces to it, you know. And like we were talking about, it's it's mm. it's not just textbook, yeah. You know, shoving and pushing and physical violence. It can also be a lot of different things. It can it can it can be emotional. It can be micro. It can be and it gradually know, builds up. Yeah. I think I think yeah. it, it can start with something very very small, mm-hmm. and as the years go by, it gets more and more and more intense, right? Mm-hmm. Which, in a way, might be why, like throughout this whole time, you barely even picked up yeah, on it because, because the few yeah. times you were in there, it was so small, and then one day it just exploded. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And and well, first of all, obviously, I'm sorry. You actually have to go through that because that's that's pretty obviously dramatic um and but that is also the reason why we're bringing um dr peterson on right mm-hmm. so she could so yeah no we're actually bringing a specialist dr peterson who's going to yep. help us um talk about abuse and what is abuse and what type of like what forms it take mm-hmm. and how to help and all this tricky and difficult subject yeah. to talk about because like you said, first of all, it is the month. It's, it's, that's this, the, the month where we're talking about all this and it's, yeah. it's just important. It's, it's an important topic. Yeah. Any chance, any chance that's, you know, you can't talk about the happy side of relationships because it's not all clean. It's not all beautiful and, and sunshine and roses. It can, it can also be get pretty ugly sometimes too. And I think that's definitely worth talking about. Yeah. All right, so I want to bring in Dr. Zoe Peterson. So she is the director of the Sexual Assault Research Initiative at the Kinsey Institute. Now, we know that abuse can take many, many forms. There's, you know, the, the list kind of goes on and on, right? Sexual, physical, financial, um, and, and oftentimes it's extremely difficult to get out of. Um, and we were talking about this earlier. It takes, on average, statistically seven times seven attempts for a a person to leave their abusive partner before they do it for good. So my first question to you would be, 
and this is said a lot, if you're in an abusive situation, why don't you just leave? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and I will say, I've, I've heard that seven times statistic um, said a lot. And I actually, I haven't been able to find the actual source for that seven times statistic. So I do like to say that there's, there's not a right number of times, and I don't want to discourage people who are thinking about leaving. So, um, you know, some people do leave the first time, and for some people it takes many more than seven. So I think there's a, a wide range. But I think the important message is that it's really hard to leave, and it's easy to say, why don't people leave? But there's all kinds of barriers. Um, and, I mean, as you noted, um, often part of, of abuse is economic abuse. So one thing that makes it really hard to leave is that often the victims of uh, domestic violence don't have access to finances um, that they would need to support themselves um, or sometimes their, their children as well. Um, often kids are a reason that, that people don't leave relationships so they don't want to break up a relationship uh, for the kids or they're afraid that if they leave that will mean that you know for example their abusive partner gets um, a loan visitation with their children and so they worry about their children's safety they think their children are safer if they stay there in the relationship oh yeah yeah yeah, I, so I think that's a huge one. Um, also, often, as you said, there's this kind of psychological component to the abuse. So they've been often kind of down, maybe isolated from their friends and family. Um, so they may not have support system to reach out to. Um, and then I think there's a couple of really important ones, which is often they're scared to leave and they're right to be scared in many ways. So right. often abusers are very dependent and, and insecure. And um, one of the things that can really escalate their violence is their partner trying to leave. Um, mm -hmm. So leaving can often be one of the most dangerous things that, that someone in an abusive relationship can do. And then the, the last one, which I think we can't um, uh, overstate, is that often they love their partner. Um, you know, people don't start out relationships as abusers and people don't fall in love with someone who's an abuser. They fall in love with the person um, and they have all the hopes and dreams we all have in relationships. Um, and uh, and it's hard to give those up. And I think even those of us who have, have never been in a um, domestic violence uh, relationship know that it's often hard to leave intimate relationships even when they're not going the way we want them to. Yeah. Um, you know... <coughs> Uh, Dr. Peterson, somebody explained it or compared it rather to digging a hole in the ground and you're getting deeper and deeper and you, you don't even realize, you know, how deep you are until you look up and you don't see daylight anymore. Um, so my question to you would be, how how does one know that they're actively being abused? Especially I mean, if it's not physical. Right. Because oftentimes it's not textbook. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think it is. I think you know, we think of abuse stereotypically as physical abuse, but there are all these other components. And I think um, a lot of times people talk about um, abusive behavior as kind of falling under this umbrella of um, of coercive control. Um, so this uh, sort of controlling behavior, um, wanting to, you know, keep track of you at all times and um, not wanting you to leave and go places without them, not wanting you to see friends and family without them present, um, checking up on you constantly. Um, and this kind of controlling behavior then um, can take all these different forms that include psychological abuse, so putting you down, insulting you, 
um, controlling the finances, as we discussed. And so sometimes abuse looks like those things and it never, never reaches the level of physical abuse because it never needs to. No, uh, the goal is really to control. Mm -hmm. And you, and you make these small little allowances right. uh, and gradually these allowances become bigger and bigger. And, and the, the friends isolating yourself from your friends and family is really important to hear because that those people have known you for way longer yeah. potentially than your abuser. And they're the ones, if anybody who are going to pull you out of a rough situation. And so when you get isolated like that, you literally have no lifeline anymore. Yeah, I think that's true. And sometimes also then that makes it hard for you to sort of check, you know, check the things that feel wrong because there's no one to check them off of. Like this doesn't feel right, but maybe I'm just imagining it and it makes it harder to kind of get that reality check. I think. And also yeah. this, um, the, um, the, the mental abuse you're talking about, like, you know, keep constantly checking up on them, not only then to leave all that stuff. I feel like sometimes you as a partner, if you're a victim of that, it could be taken for extreme jealousy, mm -hmm. right? And therefore a lot of people's like, well, you know, if, if he's jealous because he loves me and because he cares about right. me, or she's so flattering like, at that point. And so like, it's well, like, cares, uh, so. where, where's the line? Yeah. You know, where, where is it too much? Right. I think that's a great question. And I think that's part of this sort of, you know, early in relationships, this sort of intense attention can feel really good. And so it can be really easy to miss some of those, I think, incredibly easy to miss some of those early signs like, you know, extreme jealousy is not a great sign, but early in a relationship, it can just feel like they're really attentive to you and really yeah. interested in you. Um, and so um, sometimes those things really don't become clear until further down the line. Especially in like today's age where it feels like we're so easily replaceable, you know, with all, all the options out there on sure, social I mean, and all yeah. this. It's like you, you meet one who really, really is all about you. And it right. could feel good, but you're not re even realizing that you're actually in, in like danger. Yeah. yeah. And that's typically where it starts. Social media has changed the game. You know, it goes from, well, what, why did you like this person's photo? Mm -hmm. Or why are you following this person to something deeper? Now you're checking the other person's DMs. You're going through their text messages. And it so, just snowballs into something that you really have no control over anymore. And you don't feel it maybe as intently as if they started off you know, getting in your business and checking all of your, your personal stuff. But also, do you, like, is is somebody being all in your business considered abuse if you're not comfortable with it? Or is it just somebody was overprotective? Where, how do you justify it? And then, and then if you have to talk to someone, like, when do you know? Yeah. Go to the police and be like, hey, my partner is just looking at me uh, all on my Instagram constantly and, I, and she won't let me, he or she won't let me have drinks with my friends. Yeah. They'll be like, uh, okay. They'll look at you like you have three heads. Yeah. Yeah. I, that is really a challenge, I think, because I mean, I think, I think you're right. Like, I think if someone is checking up on you and, you know, controlling your social media and asking all these questions and not letting you have to experience that, those are really bad signs. Um, and, and I think really worth paying attention to, especially if you communicate that you're uncomfortable with it and it, and it continues. Um, and yet you're right. That's not the kind of thing anyone's going to, call the police for and so i think that makes it hard for people sometimes to like trust that their instincts about that are right yeah. you also can't be afraid to maybe have a little bit of confrontation because a lot of people will just sit back and let themselves be treated a certain way for the sake of an argument you know like i just don't want to put up with a fight i don't want to have a bad night so i'm just going to not say anything 
and what what else would you recommend in terms of setting the setting the standard for the way that you should allow yourself to be treated? Do you do it early on in a relationship, or how how do you what do you recommend? Yeah, so this is tricky. I mean, I think of course you know everyone has a right to and should set their own boundaries within relationships, but I also think. Um, I think we have to be careful not to blame people for not telling people how to treat them because sometimes, as you said, it's gradual and, and the problem isn't evident until it becomes a situation where they don't feel safe uh, to set those boundaries and tell the person what they need. Um, so I think, yes, we should all, you know, we should all set boundaries. We should all, you know, tell our partners what we're comfortable with and what we're not, but also sometimes the point at which we're, you know, we kind of realize it's uncomfortable, it becomes, we become fearful about um, being able to set those boundaries. And so that makes it um, really hard. So if you're somebody who's listening right now and you feel like you might be in a toxic relationship, Dr. Peterson, what would you recommend, you know, they A, pay attention to and B, how do they work on getting out of it? Yes. So I think in some ways this is very individual for all the reasons I said. It's different when there's kids involved. Um, it's different when you have more access to resources and more social support. Um, but I guess I would say, you know, if you feel threatened and in danger a lot um, and if you feel very controlled um, and, and feel like you're not kind of able to make your own decisions, if you feel like your partner is putting you down and making you feel bad, badly about yourself. Those are all really, really concerning signs. And I think um, one thing that people can always do is, is reach out for support. So there are national hotlines on domestic violence um, and you can reach out to those and no one is going to make you leave the relationship if that's not what you want to do or are ready to do. But it's a place to get support and talk to people. And, you know, if you're really in danger, kind of get help planning for your own safety in case you, you need a plan in place. Um, or if you think you're ready to leave to get support and, and suggestions about how to go about that as well. Does it ever, um, does it ever happen that somebody who is being abused doesn't really realize it because that's the only love relationship they know or they have a dysfunctional um, relationship toward how a partnership should be? So, you know how we'll say sometimes like some guys or some girls likes to be more dominated in their relationship and uh, the other person is the one who makes all the decision, who decides where we're going, who's deciding all of this, who's providing financially and the other partner is just okay with just letting that happen. Is that, is that possible that... I don't know if I'm making myself clear where it's just like, that's the relationship they're maybe in. They, that's, maybe that's, they saw a pattern happening with, with their parents. Or <coughs> yeah, maybe that's and that's just what the they're used they to. And they're getting mm -hmm. technically abused emotionally, but they don't even know it. Yes, I think, I mean, I think often um, people who are in relationships that that we might say are abusive or are violent don't think of it that way. And and sometimes I think I think there's a lot of reasons for that. They, they may not have very good models of what a relationship can and should look like. Um, also, I think we have all these stereotypes about what domestic violence looks like, um, that it looks, you know, very physically violent, for example, and they may say, well, you know, that's not what it looks like. So this must be okay. Yeah. Um, or, or, you know, they, they, their partner has put them down and they're, 
therefore very insecure and think, well, you know, maybe this is the best I can do. Um, so I think there's all kinds of reasons that people don't recognize that that the relationship they're in is abusive, even when it might look very abusive from from the outside. You know, what's interesting is it kind of took, so I've been in several actually abusive relationships and I didn't even realize that that was the name for it. Once you put a name on it, I feel like that's when it kind of spurs you into thinking, all right, now it's time to go. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, because it, it was, for me, it was like mostly emotional, um, mostly verbal. And it wasn't until I explained this, I went to see a, a therapist and she said, Jen, you know, you're, what you're describing right now is abuse. Mm -hmm. And when I put a name on it is when I was able to make that decision to leave. And that's why I think it is important to, to go to maybe a third party, an outside party to seek, to seek help in, in that way. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think it's sort of it's sort of bi-directional, right? Like putting that name on it helps you see that maybe this isn't a situation you want to be in. And also when you get to the point that you recognize you might not want to be in that situation, it's probably easier to put that label on it as well. Right. You know, before that you might think, well, I really I love this person and I don't I don't want to think of them as someone who is abusive or call them an abuser. Um, and so part of like getting to the point of being able to use that label, I think, is recognizing that that there is a problem. Is it um, I feel like personally as a man, when when I think about abusing relationship automatically, I'm assuming a man abusing a woman. Um, and I'm sure that there are men that are being uh abused but do you what's the like percentage and what does abuse towards men look like because if it's physical we'd like to think as a man that we're i want to say if we're not like handicapped but if we're fully capable that we are technically stronger so if we're getting physically abused we technically are able to to fight back or or pin the person to the ground so that they stop acting out um how does that look? And and if and if there are some men that are being physically abused, how come they're not doing anything? Is there because there's shame about them being abused by somebody who's less strong, in quote? Or how does that look? Yes, this is such an important question and a really difficult one, to be honest, um, and really contested. So um, if you look at who presents at domestic violence shelters, who comes into hospitals with injuries from domestic violence, um, it is overwhelmingly women who yeah. um, have been abused by men. But interestingly, in large scale research where they give people questionnaires and say, have you had these things happen in your relationship? Have you had a partner do these to you? Have you done them to a partner? Um, what you, they actually find is that men and women perpetrate abuse at about the same rates um, against their um, other sex partners. So men report about the same rates of being hit and slapped and pushed um, as women do. So how to reconcile these things is really difficult. And I think people have, have offered different explanations, and it's probably a combination of all of them, which um, is, first of all, that, you know, there may be different types of abuse within relationships. So some relationships may be kind of um, emotionally volatile, and there's kind of this mutual um, violence within the relationship. Um, and it's probably lower level, um, you know, people get angry, they don't have good uh conflict resolution skills. And so they find each other, you know, screaming at each other and maybe hitting each other. 
Um, and it's possible that that's a sort of different thing than this very controlling kind of behavior uh, that we think of with you know, often women who end up in domestic violence shelters or in the hospital, for example. Um, but also, I think we do have these gender stereotypes. So we have these stereotypes that men are should be physically strong, um, women should be uh, passive, um, men should be the aggressive ones. Um, and so I do think also part of the picture is that prevents men from from coming forward. Um, to get help from domestic violence shelters and, and hospitals. Um, and, and we do know from lots of research that men are victims both of, of abuse by women and by male partners as well. Yeah, I was going to say uh, it might be the physical could maybe be more prominent in like um, you know, a homosexual um, relationship because mm -hmm. now you have possibly a man who wants to be more physical. Um, right. And but but so then you would you would say that in 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 a couple the the abuse would be mostly verbal or is it uh, towards men or is it also is it still pretty equal on, on physical as well so when you when you look at large-scale surveys it's pretty equal on physical now often these surveys measure things like hitting slapping pushing hair pulling and so i guess you know some people have raised questions for example is a slap from a woman against a man the same as a slap from a man against you know toward a woman you know is that the same level and it's really hard to sort yeah. all that out um but i think i think in any case you know, men are reporting that they um, experience, you know, physical aggression from well. women. Um, and I think that's important, uh, regardless of whether we're saying which is worse or um, who has it uh, more severe. Yeah, but it's important to know that it is prevalent and it is just as equal to what women report, especially because, you know, I, I would have to imagine that as a man, if you report physical violence against you from a woman, there is a worry that I would be sure flashes through your mind. Am I going to, is this going to make me look weak that I can't control, you know, somebody who, so to speak, mm. um, is of, is a little bit weaker than me physically. Yeah. Uh, does that make me less of a man? Does that make me, you know, more of a, of a weaker, a weak person? So I'm sure there's that, that's, that's a concern as well. I mean, yeah, it, just from, I've, I've luckily never been in, in these relationship, but you know, if I have to think about it, I'm like, if, if it's a, I want to say normal woman who's trying to hit me, I'd like to think I can defend myself. And obviously we're taught not to hit back. So I wouldn't hit back because now I become abusive, but then at least pin the person to the ground. But like, obviously if it's like a, Chris Cyborg, MMA fighter, <laughs> really, really big women that probably get, she could probably definitely uh, be way stronger than me. So yeah, yeah, I absolutely. could see that too. Okay. So Dr. Peterson, if you're, if you're a, a loved one of somebody who you suspect is being abused, that's a tricky situation too, because on one hand, you don't want to seem like you're being pushy or nosy or in their business. <laughs> Um, on the other hand, you are concerned for their safety. So how do you handle that? Yes, I think, I mean, I think if you have concerns, it's always good to reach out uh, to someone. I think, you know, when I think we we're kind of taught to sort of like mind our own business and not get involved. But I think, you know, so often uh, if people are in a bad situation, they need the support. And if you're wrong and they're not in a bad situation, at least they know you, you care about them. So I think it's always good 
to reach out, you know, to express your concerns. I think it's sometimes helpful because as we discussed, sometimes people aren't ready to call this abuse. Um, so, you know, maybe avoiding that term, but, mm -hmm. but you know, naming the behaviors that, that are making you concerned, um, expressing concern, offering support. Um, and then I think, you know, if, if the person confirms your concerns that this is, is an issue, I think, you know, again, really respecting their autonomy and giving them control about how to move forward. So what you don't want to do is replicate what the, the perpetrator is doing and sort of try and take away their control. Good point. Um, but, you know, so not telling them what to do, uh, but but expressing concern and and maybe offering resources that they could consider. Right. Like, you know, you always have, hey, I have a spare bedroom. Yeah. You know, I have my couch, whatever. I'll take it. You know, you can sleep in my bed, like whatever it is. Bring yeah. the kids um, just, just so you know yeah. you have a home here just to let them know that there's somebody out there who cares about them and and is going to be there if they fall. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if they decide you know, not to leave, but to stay for, for now, at least, I think, you know, checking in regularly um, and keeping in mind that they may not always reciprocate because they may not have, you know, access to reach out to you, but you can reach out to them and just let them know you're there. Um, and I think also to keep in mind that that their partner may be monitoring uh, contact. So you have to be careful how you do the contact, but just you know, regularly checking in and expressing that you're thinking about them, I think can be can be really useful. Now you specialize um, in in sexual aggression uh, and sexual violence, um, and yeah, I know that sometimes people are hesitant to report sexual abuse if the abuser is someone they're in a committed relationship with, you know, say a spouse or or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. So, would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. Um, so we, uh, it's absolutely the case that the closer uh, the person is to the, the perpetrator, the less likely they are to report it through formal means. And how does the uh, reporting work? Like, um, what's the, 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 um, the law? How, how does that work when you go to the police? What's the process? I remember, this is so random, and I remember seeing this video. It was a, it was a video call to a woman. The woman was calling the police, right? And she was, her, her husband was being abused. And she called the police saying, uh, you know, I, I want to order a pizza. Have you seen those? Oh, yeah. And then, and then the police like, this is not a pizza. I was like, no, I want to order a pizza. This is the address. And now the police officer, uh, you know, understood what was going on to try to at least guide her through it. But once, once you decide that you want to contact the police, how does, what's the whole process? Do you know a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is not really my area of expertise. I mean, I think, um, I think typically, you know, with domestic violence, um, often the police are called because it's sort of a crisis situation. Um, and then, you know, the, the police sort of have to sort that out um, in the moment. But, but of course, you can also go to the police um, after you've left for, you know, restraining orders and other orders of protection. Um, so there's kind of multiple ways that, that you can potentially use the, the police. I also want to ask you this, because when you say orders of protection, restraining orders, it has been my experience because I used to work at a domestic violence shelter in Connecticut that when that protective order is signed off on or that restraining order is signed off on, yes, it, it does mean that if the abuser uh, or the person who, who has the restraining order out against them uh, 
if they violate certain parameters, then the police have to get involved. Yeah. However, it there is a risk of only further angering that person. And if they're going to come after you, they're going to come after you. If they want to do something terrible to you, they're going to do something terrible to you. Um, and, and the police may or may not be there. So that's, a, that's also, to me, a very difficult situation to navigate. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, I mean, they're obviously, yeah, protective orders are obviously um, imperfect. Um, and, and so I think it's not, it's not bad as one kind of protective strategy, but I think you're right. You don't want that to be the, the only thing you're relying on. You need a, a sort of broader safety plan of, you know, a place to go that, um, you know, where you might not be easy to be found and um, yeah. some of those other considerations. And that's just a tangent, but. Do okay. you know how long it takes to get a um, restraining order? It depends on the, on the situation, yeah. how violent it was leading up to whatever the, the protective order or the restraining order you know, the reason for it, it could mm -hmm. be immediate or, you know, it could take effect in, in a few days. Okay. But it's not like a month process. No, but, uh, uh, somebody from the legal world has to sign off on it. Okay. So however long that might take. Right. Um, so, okay, Dr. Peterson. So you, um, we were saying that you, you specialize in sexual aggression. Is there anything that you've come across in your research that surprised you? Uh, yeah, so I think, uh, you know, in, in terms of thinking about um, sexual assault and sexual aggression, um, I think one thing that I think is really important to recognize is that it's a whole broad range of behaviors. And we often think about, um, you know, sort of the most extreme. So, you know, forcible rape, for example, um, uh, where someone uses physical force to obtain sex. But, but there's a lot of as with all kinds of violence, a lot of kind of lower level behaviors that are um, potentially harmful that don't reach that level. And I think often in relationships, especially when you're talking about sexual abuse within relationships, um, often it is those lower level behaviors that you see. Um, so pressuring someone constantly for sex or intimidating them so that they're afraid to say no to sex, um, for example. Um, so again, kind of like with other aspects of intimate partner violence, often they don't have to use physical force because there's all these other kind of lower level behaviors um, that they can use to sort of control the person in this, in this case, sexually. Or What's a sex a, act that they might not be comfortable with. Yes, I was going to say what you're saying, intimidating them in exchange for sex. How? What does that look like? Or what? What? what like? What's um? Is there a sentence that you could tell us that just? Like, yeah, I mean, I think you know, just if if someone gets really angry every time you say no to sex, you yeah. might feel like you okay continue to say no to sex, especially if they get very angry and they are prone to you know yeah um, physically abusive behaviors. Mm -hmm. And never be afraid to say no, no matter how deep the commitment is on, on both of your parts, never be afraid to say no. And that person, whenever you say no, it, it, that, that means no under every circumstance. But like, like you were saying, it could also lead to them getting more angry and now forcing it. Yeah, but it's, but it, it needs to be said that you, you don't like the way things are going or you, you don't, you know, you have to, at some point, use your voice, you know? And I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think I it's understand. I understand it, it can be a scary situation. I, I, I get that. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think it's an, a, an important point that, um, 
yeah, that, that you know, that even when people say no, that, um, you know, sometimes the other person doesn't hear that or um, doesn't, doesn't sort of respect that. And I think um, in part, if that happens enough, then it feels almost, you know, people start to feel like it's pointless to say no, like it doesn't, it doesn't matter what I say. Um, and so I think in relationships, it can be a sort of longer term kind of coercive um, experience where at some point people sort of give up and just feel like they, they don't have other options. Yeah. If anything, I think the, the, the Me Too movement has brought to light, you know, certain circumstances that have been maybe inappropriate or unacceptable for, for decades. Um, but that also brings in issues of consent and what that means. That's a whole, I'm sure that's something that you're researching right now too. Yes. So yes, actually, what is consent is a real interest of mine. And I think it's so hard and it's so complicated. And, you know, how does power play into power differences play into that? And, um, you know, what, how much coercion is too much coercion? How much pressure if you make someone feel just obligated? So you talked about, you know, even in relationships, you can always say no, but, you know, sometimes there's this sense of obligation, um, so all of these like complicated factors that make it hard for people to to withdraw consent, I think. Um, and I, I um, share something personal. Don't know how relevant it is, but I remember I was um, like a few years ago, probably three. I was dating someone, and every time we would start to get intimate, you know, she would say no, and I'd be like, oh, okay. So then I stop. But then she would come back on me and then start to like in like uh, start the whole process again. And then when I, I tried to be like, no, 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 I'm like, okay, so no, stop. And then she would come back again and she would come back again. And then I think one day I, I said something, I was like, yeah, but you keep saying no. So like, I, I don't want to keep doing it. But that's just what she was into. Mm-hmm. She no, wanted me to be like a little bit more, yeah, yeah. And then kind of like, Not forcefully because well, there's also issues of like you know dominance because because there are some women who who like to be dominated in the bedroom and okay, uh, that's a personal taste. But then as a guy, especially you're talking about the Me Too movement. As a guy, like we're even especially when we're not into that and we're always being very careful to make sure everybody's on the same page. That's like we're like I mean I'm terrified. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think in general, you know, we just we don't in our culture teach people to talk about sex and what they do and don't want sexually. Um, And, you know, it's like most most people don't have the skills to say, you know, here's what I'm really into. Here's what I'm not into. What are you into and not into? Um, And so I think, you know, I think that makes communication around sexual consent especially hard because we're all trying to, like, infer it without actually saying it. Yeah, it's right, kind of like so, you yeah. try it out and you see see the response. And honestly, sometimes it's, it doesn't <laughs> but, go well. But having that happen in real time is probably yeah. not, not the best idea. It's probably no. good to have a conversation, especially if you're going to like be in a relationship with that person. But we talk about this, um, me and Julian talk about this all the time, the difference between American culture oh and European culture when it comes to how open we are about talking about sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always, I keep saying that the American culture is the most censored, sexualized. It's very censored, obviously not the most, but it's a very censored, sexualized um, um, group. Mm-hmm. But they're also the ones watching some of the most weird stuff. And maybe that's because you know we're yeah, so, be- repressed so repressed that they're the, 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 the sickest minds. 
the thickest I lines. Don't know. It's, yeah. We just, well, you know, because in, in French ads back in the days, we had boobs on on yeah, that's on true. billboards. It doesn't matter. People are topless at the beach. It doesn't you know do anything. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's like everyone gets all their sex education from this media that are unrealistic and unhelpful and and then people don't know how to talk to their partners about it also ties to what you were saying right so if you're with a friend and you, you can see you think your friend is being abused emotionally it is is it possible that two couples have a very very different notion of what abuse is so maybe you look at this person and this relation like oh she's being abused but maybe she's like oh Like generally for them, it works. And this is how it's done. Does mean, that happen? For, like, for the friend who... Yeah, yeah. Is, is it about? possible that, you know, you're concerned for someone, but that's that, but for them, they're totally safe and they feel totally safe. And it is an actual safer relationship. There's a very safe relationship. But for you from the outside, this is not what you used to in your own relationship. So the fact that it's different makes you feel like it could be... Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's certainly possible, and I, I mean, I think in general, it's hard, it's really hard, if not impossible, to judge relationships from the outside. I mean, I think in all kinds of ways, we we often do this with our friends, right? Like we think something's good or not good, and um, we often are only seeing a tiny little piece of it. And I think, um, I think there are all kinds of individual differences in terms of what people want from their relationships, cultural differences in terms of what people want. Um, So, I mean, certainly there's some things that I would say are always a problem, but often those are not the things we see from the outside. And so, yeah, I think absolutely we can can misinterpret, you know, what we think we're seeing. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, there, there was one in 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 one of the abusive, you know, relationships that I had been in the the my marriage. Um, there was a, a moment of of clarity that happened when I looked at myself in the mirror and I and I said, I'm not happy here. I'm not this is not a good, healthy relationship for me. And I'd be way better off alone mm -hmm. and, and out of it. And to me, that felt like the most truthful, honest mm -hmm. thing that I had ever said to myself in the course of this five-year relationship. I think we do a lot of uh, covering up for ourselves, whatever makes, whatever pacifies the way we feel at that moment to normalize everything. And that can carry on for years and years and years. And, and sometimes all it takes is one thing to just trigger you into that moment into of clarity. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's tough as a friend to, to make that happen for the other person. It's almost like a child, right? You know, you have to you want your kids to learn from your mistakes and, you know, and don't follow the same path that I did. But there's no better way to learn than by being in it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you can't you can't bring someone to that point. They, yeah. they have to come to that point. So just have a reasonable expectation that you're going to be met with with resistance at times. Yeah, absolutely. Anything the culture, else? the culture one was also very good. It's true that if you yeah. think of how um, Middle Eastern marriage work compared to an American one, I'm sure it's it's so Everybody different has their own ideas and, you of know what's, what's acceptable and what's exactly and, th and that's also that where it becomes tricky again for somebody to step in so i think what you were saying jen is actually correct in the sense of just offering support mm -hmm. if they need it is probably the most gentle way to to help someone mm -hmm. absolutely
But your intuition, yeah. I would say, you know, above anything else, trust your intuition. If you feel like something's not right and you might not come to that realization tomorrow or right then or even a year from now, but you'll get there. You'll get there one way or the other for sure. Because there's only so much that, that a, a human being can take and, and, and how, you know, horribly or how often they can be treated a certain way before they eventually haven't, they've had enough. Yeah. And there's also the whole, I mean, we even touched on that, the whole um, parents abusing mm-hmm. the kids, not necessarily sexually, but also emotionally, because mm-hmm. I'm sure that's a big thing too. Yeah, and there is there's quite a bit of, of data to support the idea that that often being exposed to um, childhood violence, um, abuse from parents or from other people in their lives is a risk factor for perpetrating um, violence and in intimate relationships later. Not that all children who experience that will by any means, but right. it, it is certainly related. But then how do you help uh, a kid who's being victim of uh, emotional abuse Mm-hmm. If it's by both parent, because I'm assuming one parent would probably step up. But if because they're young, you can't. What's what's yeah, the I mean, sometimes what happens is like the kid will go to a teacher for help. Um, and say something or then the teacher will try to investigate a little bit more. Uh, yeah, I mean, that you're talking about. Yeah, that's that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough situation because they don't know where the abuse is originating. And all you can do is just be that ear. And then and then. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. You suggest it. What would you suggest there? Because I know that happens a lot where it's the teacher almost becomes the real parent to these kids. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think in general, when kids are experiencing abuse of any kind, emotional, physical, sexual, I mean, I think it can be so helpful to have an adult believe them and take it seriously. Um, and, and I think, you know, there's, I think, some reason to believe that, you know, one of the worst things for a kid is to experience abuse, trust an adult and tell them, and then have that dismissed or not taken seriously. So I think even just the act of believing them and, and, you know, letting them know that you trust them and you think this is serious and it's a problem and that they don't deserve that, even that can, I think, really um, make a difference. And I think, you know, if we're talking about this pathway between um, experiencing violence and then becoming violent, those kinds of experiences that sort of upset that pathway. So having someone believe you, having someone uh, show you lots of empathy, those are the kinds of things that can help prevent that from kind of coming to that outcome. Yeah, especially when you know that that whoever is being abused, odds are they're being isolated from the ones they love the most. And sometimes it's the ones they love the most who are are the abusers. So I think that... maybe the most important thing to take away from this conversation is that there is no awkward conversation. <laughs> you know, uh, if you, if you sense that somebody might be in trouble or they're being abused, don't, don't be silent about it. Just, you know, in your, in your yeah. own gentle way, let them know that you're there yeah. for them. Let them know that you're that lifeline. And also I want to say like, pay attention to what abuse is because mm-hmm. again, like, immediately me i think abuse i think physical i i it, it's so hard to think of emotional abuse and it's it was very important that we talked about this I mm-hmm. think. yeah well thank you dr peterson thank for you so your much insight. for your time yeah. i really appreciate it. i thought that was a good conversation one that should be had not just in october by the way but you know all year round very important 
Absolutely. And thanks for where can we uh, Where can we find you if uh, listeners want to you know, uh, look you up? Yeah, so uh, you can look up the Kinsey Institute. Um, all my contact information is there. Perfect. Dr. Zoe Peterson, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. A Huda Media Production.